Thank you, Jesus. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? If you have your Bible, I want you to stand with me to Revelation chapter 20. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Amen. Revelation chapter 20. I'll begin reading in verse 11. Several months ago, I took a text from the book of Revelation, Brother Andy, and I said, I probably never. Very rarely would you hear me preach from the book of Revelation. I find myself preaching from it over and over and over again. <laughs> it's just the way it works. Amen. Today we take communion. This week I have diligently sought God. I wanted to preach a communion service that you would remember. But the Lord had a plan for this service that was beyond what I had grasped, and he laid on my heart in the middle of last week a sermon, a message. And I'll be honest with you, this is the hardest message I've ever prepared to preach in my entire life. That's the truth. But I'm about to do what God told me to do. So I want to ask you to pray with me before we read the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your anointing. Thank you for your presence in this house. I'm asking God in the next few moments to allow the Word of God to speak into our hearts and our lives. Let it touch us and let it change us. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the book according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works." And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to let it grip our hearts this, this afternoon, Lord. The reality, the severity, the truthfulness of Scripture. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. In the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, John describes a strange and unearthly scene. Heaven and earth, he said, flee from the ancient of days as he ascends to his great white throne and sits in judgment over the whole world. John's apocalyptic language and poetic imagery have already told the story of the fading character of the world, of the passing away of everything that we know and see around us. And now at this point in the narrative, the only reality that matters is that God is seated on His throne of judgment. His verdict will be final. His judgment will be holy and righteous. And the whole world, every man, woman, and child that ever lived, is about to be judged. An immense parade of humanity appears before the throne of God, both rich and poor, great and small, educated and ignorant, the elderly 
and the infant. None are spared from this encounter. And there is no place of escape in all of creation. There's nowhere to hide. And as the dramatic scene unfolds, a moment of dynamic tension arrives. There is a book. And in that final cataclysmic moment, that book is opened. That book, my friend, is a fearful thing to contemplate. For it contains the record of every person's life. Every deed has been recorded in that book. Every word that has been spoken has been recorded in that book. Nothing has escaped the great record keeper. Nothing has been neglected and nothing has been forgotten. It is a sobering truth to ponder, to recognize that each and every one of us under the sound of my voice today, all of us will one day stand in that place. Every one of us will stand before his great white throne and that book will be opened and it will be opened to the pages that contain the record of our lives. Yes, you see, there is a chapter in that book that has your name on it. Not your wife's name, not your husband's name, not your child's name. There's a chapter that has your name. And everything you've ever done, every word you've ever spoken, every self-justified action you've ever taken, your entire life will be opened up to the scrutiny and the judgment of the only one in all of creation who can bear the title, The Holy One. What comes next is horrifying. Men and women are judged on the basis of the works that are recorded in that book. In the end, on that final day, faith is measured not by confession, but by your actions. Not by faith that you have professed, but by the life that you have lived on that great day of judgment, on what the Scripture calls the great day of wrath. Uh, amen. On that day, we will each be measured by the lives that we have lived. That's what Paul calls it in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. There is no more sobering truth in all of Scripture than the truth that one of these days, he, the righteous judge, the Holy One, he will render to every man according to his deeds. All of us will be judged according to the things that we have done. Paul goes on and says to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, to them there's eternal life. 
But unto them who aren't contentious, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath is what's reserved for them. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. Works. They are the unmistakable evidence of the loyalty of the heart. The things we do. The deeds we perform, the words we say, they express belief or unbelief. They express faithfulness or unfaithfulness. And judgment will reveal through the record that is written in that book whether your faith in God is genuine or not. It won't be measured by what you told the preacher. It won't be measured by what you told your mom and dad. It won't be measured by the story you've told your spouse. It's going to be measured by the things you have done. The message of Scripture is consistent in that. Through the Old Testament and the New, John taught it. Paul taught it. Even Jesus taught it. There will come a day when your life will be measured. There will come a day when you will stand before the righteous judge and everything that's in that book will be opened up and your whole life will come under his scrutiny. You said we're, we're saved by grace, and yes, we are. But the Bible is clear in the fact that we'll be judged by our works. We're going to be judged by the deeds that we do. John records that sobering scene as those whose lives are found lacking are thrown into a lake of fire. What an incredibly frightening image. A lake that burns with fire. It is a place of eternal damnation that was created not for lost souls of men, uh, but for the devil and all of his fallen angels. Uh, but in eternity, that place will become the final destination of all those who have rejected God's great mercy. There they'll suffer the wrath of God, along with the devil and all of his minions. And I come to this pulpit on a Sunday afternoon to remind you there really is a place called hell. There really is a lake which burns with fire. There really is a place of eternal judgment. There really is a place of everlasting horror and unending terror. It's a place of torment uh, where the wrath of God uh, is continually poured out. Uh, it's a place where you are eternally and forever cut off from God. Cut off from life. It's a place of dying. The scripture calls it the second death. Think about it. If men's hearts fail at the thought of the first death. If death is the intimidating foe that stalks the darkness of our nights. How much more frightening is the specter of a second death. Only this second death. It's not a death that comes quickly. No, the scripture calls it an eternal death, an eternal dying. It's a continual and constant 
dying that never reaches an ending. And all of the agony of death is there. All of the pain and the suffering and the terror of death is there continually without the release of death. Think about it. It's just as bad as you could imagine. When we look at Scripture and we look at the book of Revelation, particularly the chapter that follows our text, we're quick to point out that the heavenly city that John describes in the next chapter is far and away greater than the description given to it. We celebrate the fact that the Bible tells us of all those things in eternity, the half has never yet been told. But I want you to consider the truth this morning, that if heaven is many degrees greater and many degrees better than the image given of it in Scripture, then hell in all of its terror uh, is much worse uh, than the simple word pictures uh, that I would use to describe it. Uh, or the way that the Bible tells about it. There really is a place called hell, and the half has never yet been told. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. It's not something that we want the preacher to dwell on because the reality of hell offends our sensibilities. It's hard for us to understand it's hard for us to comprehend the terribleness of the wrath of God and the righteousness of His justification for that wrath. Let's face it. If it was up to us, we'd find another way to write the end. If it was our choice, we'd find another way for God's righteousness and God's justice to be satisfied. But mark my word, there is no other way. If there was another way, there would not be a cross. Uh, if there was another way, God would not have robed himself uh, in flesh uh, and walked among humanity to be crucified by cruel men. God has done everything that he can to save the world. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23, the prophet asked a rhetorical question. Speaking in the place of God, he says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God? And not that he should return from his ways and live. God would rather that you turn from your ways and live. God would rather that you change your deeds. God would rather that you change the way that you live than that you face eternal death. That's why there was a cross. That's why he came and died. That's why he shed his blood. That's why he went to Calvary's hill. That's why he suffered and bled. Because God would rather that not a single person would burn in hell. But don't you buy into the lie that God's love is so great that his judgment is going to overlook the fact that there are people who will die lost. The Bible said narrow is the way. Straight is the gate that leads to eternal life. But broad is the way. And many there are that shall pass therein that leads to a place called hell. A couple of years ago, there was a controversy surrounding the lyrics of the song, In Christ Alone. There was a group that was compiling a hymnal. And they wanted to use that song in the hymnal, but they wanted to remove a line from the song. It was the line that said, 
the wrath of God was satisfied. They felt that the love of God was a much stronger message. So they proposed replacing the line, the wrath of God was satisfied, with the phrase, the love of God was magnified. It's just a little change with such a positive outcome. The wrath of God is replaced by the great love of God, and everybody goes home happy. But what they didn't understand, and what we sometimes fail to grasp, is that if we exalt the love of God to the exclusion of the wrath of God, we take the very meaning out of the cross. We rob the gospel of its importance. Uh, if there is no hell, there's no need for salvation. Uh, if there is no wrath, uh, there's no need for repentance. Uh, if there is no judgment, uh, there's no need to turn your heart towards heaven. If there was no wrath that needed to be satisfied, if there was no hell that must be avoided at all cost, then there would be no need for an old rugged cross. There would be no need for God to robe himself in flesh and suffer and die at the hands of cruel men. To lower himself a little lower than the angels. The scripture used the word humbling himself. Can you imagine the ancient of days, the king of all kings, he who was and is and forever will be, everything bows in his presence. But he humbled himself so he could save you and me from a place called hell. The horror of the cross reflects the severity of hell. If God went to such lengths to save us, if he endured such suffering on our behalf, then there must be something horrible. There must be something beyond our wildest imagination that he was saving us from. The problem is that we live in a culture that has idolized God's love to the extent that his other attributes have been ignored. God is love. And the prevailing mindset of this generation is that that is all that God is. Love encompasses the whole of God's character. It is His only attribute that matters. But some people need to be reminded that the same scriptures that testify of the great love of God also testify of His absolute righteousness, of His unerring justice, of His untarnished holiness, and His fierce wrath. No, the world says, you got it wrong. Jesus came in love. He loved all people. He loved everyone everywhere. His whole message was a message of love. Jesus didn't come to frighten folks uh, into believing him. He didn't come to intimidate folks into doing what was right. He came to love them. He came to show them unmeasurable love uh, that through the great power of his everlasting love, he might show them a better way to hear them tell it. Judgment and wrath and condemnation are not a part of the message of Jesus. But those who hold such a view have never taken the time to see the Jesus of Scripture. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus was a hellfire preacher. He preached on hell a whole lot more than your pastor preaches on hell. As a matter of fact, 
Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the entire Bible. In fact, he mentioned hell more than everybody else in the Bible combined together. Jesus preached hellfire and brimstone uh, and he defined it uh, as eternal punishment. Uh, his message to all that would hear him was a warning for sinners uh, to escape hell at any cost uh, because the reality of hell, as Jesus told it, was horrible. Hell is a horrific place of judgment where God punishes people for their sins. And Jesus believed that a horrific place of punishment was waiting on judgment day for those that rejected the mercy of God. The clearest example of his teachings on hell is found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. It's the longest passage where Jesus teaches about hell. And it's the most detailed account that he gives of the judgment day in the four Gospels. Jesus begins that passage by saying in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all His holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all the nations, and He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Verse 41 says, Then shall He say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from Me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 says and these, those on the left shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous, those on the right unto life eternal. Or consider, consider Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus told a parable of the enemy who came in and sowed tares among the wheat. The, you know the story. The master let them grow together, the tares and the wheat, in the same field, side by side, receiving the same water, receiving the same fertilizer, receiving the same tender care. He did not separate them in their growing. He did not separate them in that season of time. But when the harvest finally came, uh, the Lord commanded his servants, uh, go out and separate the wheat uh, from the tares, just like it separated the goats from on the sheep. Amen. And that's when Jesus begins to say in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 40, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in fire, so shall it be at the end of this world. Uh, the Son of Man uh, shall send forth His angels uh, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend uh, and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into the fiery furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Verse 49 says, So shall it be in the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Make no mistake about it. Jesus was not talking about sheep and goats. And Jesus was not talking about wheat and tares. Jesus was talking about people. 
people like you, people like me. I remember when I was a kid, back when it was more socially acceptable to preach on something like hell. I'll never forget it as long as I lived. When my pastor preached hell, honey, he preached it as hot as it gets. He preached it with such a ferocity that to this day it shakes me. That to this day it stirs me. That to this day I'm scared. I don't want to go to a place called hell. I remember many nights that I lay on my bed at night and I repented with tears uh, because I was afraid that before the sun would come up the next morning, Jesus might come back uh, for his church uh, and I wouldn't be ready. I didn't want to go to hell. I don't want to spend my days in that place. I don't want to spend eternity in a state of eternal dying. I don't want to go there. Hell frightened me. It terrified me. And on many occasions, it brought me to a place of repentance. It brought me to a place of being honest with myself and with God. They told us over the years... It's fallen out of fashion to preach on hell. They told us back in the 80s and the 90s, they said there's nothing to be gained by scaring people into repentance. There's nothing to be gained by scaring folks into conviction. Whenever you preach on things like hell and you just scare folks into a momentary conversion, but they go back uh, to what they've always been. Uh, but I come to tell somebody in this pulpit, uh, there's a real place called hell and you ought to be scared. Uh, it ought to frighten you. Uh, it ought to stir you. It ought to trouble your heart. Uh, it ought to bring you to a place of, of repentance and self-reflection. It ought to cause you to Consider your ways. It ought to cause you to consider your deeds. I am emboldened today by the fact that Jesus Christ was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And if I'm going to preach hell, I'm never going to preach it as hot as he preached it. I'm never going to tell it as real as he told it. He preached hell as hot as it gets. And he used a lot of graphic word pictures of a terrible place to get men and women to stop and consider their ways. You read the, the Gospels. The teaching of Jesus was often punctuated by these words. There shall be weeping. There, it stirs me. There shall be Weeping, not there may be, not there could be, not there's a possibility that it's going to happen. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen to just a few more texts. Matthew chapter 8, beginning of verse 11. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, speaking of the kingdom of this world, shall be cast out into outer darkness. 
There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 13. Then the king said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30. He said, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. Uh, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus' disciples were confronted by those who sought to kill them, this is what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 10, and verse 28. He said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said, who are they that you should fear them more than you fear hell? Who are they that you should be terrified of them more than you're terrified of hell? They can destroy your body. They can take your life. But God can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Talk about fear mongering. Talk about scaring people into a place of conviction. That's the way Jesus told it. It's not a question of courage versus fear. It's a question of who do you fear more, men or God? That's the question he asked. It's not a question of whether or not you had the faith or the courage to do what's right. It's a question of do you respect the judgment of God because it is real. This is how serious Jesus was about hell. Matthew chapter 18, in verse 8, he said, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offendeth thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt and maimed uh, rather than having two hands uh, and two feet uh, and be cast into everlasting fire. He said, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee because it is better to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. There's a real place called hell. It's not a fragment of someone's imagination. It's not some fantasy land that was dreamed up by a horror writer. It's a very real place and it is so bad that Jesus said it would be better for you to suffer terrible agony in this life than to suffer the judgment of God for all of eternity in hell the very prospect of hell should frighten us the very thought of hell should make us uncomfortable it should disturb us deeply but the sad truth is that we have become dangerously comfortable with hell. We've become dangerously complacent about hell. We've learned somehow to live our lives without really taking the time to contemplate the reality of hell. We've made it into something that it is not. We've watered it down in our minds. We've robbed it of its terror. We've robbed it of the wrath of God. 
the rock band ACDC was once quoted as saying, hell isn't that bad of a place. It's where all of our friends are. I can tell you on a Sunday afternoon, hell is that bad of a place. It's a place you don't want to go to. It's not a never-ending party where the world goes and celebrates those who've rejected Jesus. Uh, go and have a party for all of eternity. That's not what hell is. Uh, it's an unimaginable place uh, where an all-consuming fire burns in utter darkness. Think about it. How, what kind of fire burns uh, in utter darkness? Uh, what kind of fire burns uh, in a place where there is no light? Uh, amen. But it's a, utter, it's a fire that consumes everything that burns in an utter darkness. Jesus said it's a place where the worm never dies where punishment never ends a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth I read the result of a survey the other day the survey said that 75% of Americans believe that there really is a place called hell However, of those 75% who believe in hell, only 4% of them actually believe that there was any chance at all that they might end up there. Think about it. Three quarters of the American population believes that there really is a place called hell, but somehow they've been convinced uh, that they're not in jeopardy of going there. Uh, the vast majority of that group uh, thinks they're safe from the everlasting terror of hell. That, my friend, brings me to the most frightening story in all of Scripture that Jesus told about hell is contained in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. And this is what Jesus said. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many mighty wonderful works. And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The most horrific word in all the Bible about hell isn't fire it isn't furnace. It isn't everlasting. It isn't unending. It isn't utter darkness. It isn't worms. It isn't torment. It isn't judgment. The most frightening word in the entire Bible about hell is many. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out devils in your name and perform miracles in your name? Many will stand before him on that day and will believe that they're right. That's the most frightening thing about hell in Scripture because this is judgment day. This is the end. 
There are no second chances. There are no do-overs. There are no recounts. There is no way to go back and figure another way. This is the last peaceful breath that many will ever breathe before they enter into hell for all of eternity. And they stand in the presence of God. And they say, but Lord, I thought it was okay. I thought it was right. I mean, I did all those things. I went to church on Sunday. I paid my tithes. I went to Bible study. I did all that stuff. I want you to put yourself there for a second. Fast forward your life to that day. Will you sound like the many who called out in desperation? Lord, Lord, let me let me enumerate. Let me justify myself, God. Let me tell you, God, I, I know that I know I messed up. I, I know I've done wrong. I, I know that, but Lord, I had so many good things I did. Uh, there was so much good that surely, Lord, uh, it matters. Uh, surely, Lord, uh, it measures up. Uh, I was there every Easter. Uh, I came to Wednesday night Bible study. I came to the church fellowships. Uh, amen. I gave to the church. Uh, I remember that summertime, uh, summer camp conversion, that holiday youth convention. Uh, where I turned my heart over to Jesus, surely, surely. Are you sure? Are you certain? Do you know? Is there any reservation in your heart at all? Please, I want you to understand me. I'm asking that question for the same reason that Jesus gave the warning. Because it's the most loving thing that I could ever do for you. To cause you to stop and consider hell. It's real. I feel the conviction of the Holy Ghost flowing through this place. I want somebody to hear me. Many will go to a place called hell. Even though they thought they were going to a place called heaven, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. C.S. Lewis said there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those who say to God, thy will be done in my life. And there are those to whom God says, thy will be done. The one group ends up in heaven. The other group ends up in hell. But understand this. Everyone who ends up in hell will have chosen to go there. They are the ones who've rejected God's mercy. They are the ones who spurned His great love. They are the ones who've ignored the passionate plea of the cross. They are the ones who have time after time turned a deaf ear to His earnest plea and have ignored that gentle voice of conviction uh, that speaks into their spirit uh, on a regular basis. Those people who end up in hell will end up there because God says, I will not force my will on you. My will is that you be saved. My will is that you find mercy. 
My will is that you experience everlasting life, but your will, your will is going to be done. I know I've preached about hell, and I, I, I probably haven't done it with a fervency that my pastor did it with. I probably haven't brought nearly the frightening emotion into it that he brought into it. But I want somebody in this place to hear me and understand there really is a place called hell. There really is a book that contains every deed in your life. But that's not the end of the story. There is another book. Beside the book that contains the deeds of every man, woman, and child, the scripture says that God will open a second book. And that book, the scripture calls it the book of life uh, or the great book of the Lamb. Uh, and that book contains uh, the record uh, and the deeds uh, of heaven's only spotless Lamb. That book contains the story uh, of the life that was lived, uh, of the only perfect, sinless life that was ever lived on this planet. That book tells the story of how God, forsaking his throne, robed himself in flesh and became a man how he faced the same temptations that we face how he endured the same pain and suffering that we endure and how he emerged triumphant the lamb who never yielded to sin of all the records kept in God's eternal book there is none that could escape the judgment of hell Except this one. This one life. This one perfect, spotless lamb. And that, that book of life, uh, it contains his deeds. Uh, it contains the record. Uh, it contains the story. But that's not all that it contains. Inscribed on the pages of that book are the names of those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have shared in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Those who belong to him. That's what the scripture means uh, when it talks about being baptized into Jesus Christ. Uh, our shady, tarnished past. Uh, the record of our deeds uh, and our failures uh, and our shortcomings. Uh, it gets lost uh, in the record uh, of that one perfect, sinless life. Our deeds are washed away. By the blood of the Lamb. Every repentant sin. Everything that has been placed under the blood of Jesus. The entire record is expunged by that blood that washes 
whiter than snow. Would you stand with me? I come to tell somebody in this place, uh, there is another book. The book of the Lamb. Uh, the book that declares, uh, amen, uh, that, that those uh, who put their faith in Him, uh, those who surrendered their life to Him, uh, those who have been washed uh, in the precious blood of Jesus, uh, that book that tells uh, there is a blood uh, that covers a multitude of sins. Uh, there is grace uh, that reaches to the depth uh, of humanity. There is the love of God that compels me to avoid a place called hell. Listen to me this afternoon because I'm quickly coming to a close. There is only one way to escape the terror of hell. You can't make yourself good enough for it. You, you can't expunge the record of your life. You, you'll never be able to justify the deeds that you've done. You may justify it in your own mind. You may reason it out for yourself. You may convince yourself that your reasons are good enough. But on that day, when he opens that book, no excuse is going to make any difference. On that day, only one thing is going to matter. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That's the question you need to answer before walking out of this place this afternoon. Before you get up and walk away from His presence, you need to consider yourself. Is your name written in His book? If not, let me admonish you. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs you, Whatever it requires of you, it's better. It's better than hell. It's better than judgment. It's better than eternal damnation. Whatever it takes, you must escape hell. And there's no other way you got to make sure your name is in His book. How do you identify with Him? How do you get in Jesus Christ? You repent of your sins. You die with Him in repentance. You die with Him uh, at a place of repentance. Uh, if you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, that's how you're baptized into Jesus Christ. If you want your name uh, on the pages of that book, uh, you better have the name of Jesus called over you. Scripture says you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. This is how you know that you know that you know my name my name is in the Lamb's book of life. You see, I can't deny that other book. I can't deny the record of my life. I can't deny the many wrong things that I've done. Oh, but I claim the blood of Jesus. I claim that precious blood.
my name is in the Lamb's book of life. Would you make sure? Would you settle your eternal destiny today? Would you settle it once and for all? Would you make certain It doesn't matter anymore what you did yesterday. It doesn't matter anymore what you did last week. It doesn't matter anymore what you did last month. Now, today is a day of salvation. This is the day that God has chosen. And from this moment, everything can be different. Would you call out to him? Would you open up your heart? Would you allow the Holy Ghost to flow in your life? Oh, it shouldn't be. We shouldn't walk out of those doors this afternoon with a single unrepented sin in this place. It ought to be that every person under the sound of my voice repents before God and says, Lord, forgive me. Above all else, I must be saved. Above all else, I must be saved. Would you call out to him in Jesus' name?